Welcome to In the Fig of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of PL. Um, very quickly this week, we're going to get to my guest. We have a lot to discuss around market structure, especially in stress market conditions. So that'll be coming up very shortly. Very briefly, um, before then, we'll just have a quick look at that was the week that was. Um, and yeah, as we kind of said last week, you know, volatility is back. Uh, it's, it's exacerbated, I think, on uh, the 9th of March, which would be the Monday of last week, as most people listen to this. Um, most platforms, most banks are telling me they had like, you know, close to record days. Obviously, if you go back to when the market structure was different, I think, you know, not everyone's going to have a record. But again, you know, what we saw on the 28th of Feb was um, repeated and then given probably another sort of, you know, 10% boost on the 9th of March, which is still very good. Um, obviously, um, the oil price collapse was um, the catalyst, although if you listen to the news, um, in the UK, where I currently am, you you wouldn't know that because they were talking about coronavirus still. Obviously, that's a play, but a 30% drop in the um, oil price is quite something, obviously. And I can't let that sort of snippet go without congratulating the bank that sent out um, a piece of research to their clients, um, which cut their 2020 forecast for the price of oil. This was sent out 24 hours after the 30% price crash. So very useful. Uh, we saw a rush to safe havens. We saw a rush to the yen and the Swiss franc and um, something for the Don to get us worried about. Um, the Swiss National Bank obviously stepped up its foreign exchange interventions and um, the Japan's public in, uh, pension fund started selling yen. Now, you could argue these are fundamental moves. They're taking advantage of a, of a rise in the yen to sort of you know, buy more foreign bonds. You could call it manipulation. It's whatever colour you want to really put on that. Um, other than that, I think really, I guess the the interesting point here is um, crypto fans. Uh, we were always told Bitcoin was a safe haven, and um, Bitcoin's kind of gone down with everything else. Uh, personally, I think it's got something to do with people selling, you know, good trades inverted commas uh, to pay for bad ones. Although I don't know why people can't sit there. I mean, you know, I always thought the the definition of being a good trader was to run your profits and cut your losses. Why you have to do both at the same time is something of a mystery to me. But um, it's not the first time I've probably been out of date with this thing. The other thing, more seriously, I guess, is the fact that U.S. Treasuries also struggled, um, and again, they're meant to be a safe haven play. And I wonder how much of that is a market structure play um as in you know with dealers not being able to hold inventory with you know the restructuring of fixed income businesses away from risk holding as has happened largely driven by regulation i have to say um I wonder whether that was also something that exacerbated the moves and suddenly, whereas before there would have been a host of institutions willing to step in and go, here you go, here's my price, I'm willing to hold that on a longer term basis. The market makers, quote unquote, that we now have um, will say, yes, I'll make you a price, but obviously that price is subject to a lot of slippage. Um, and I think we get what we saw on Monday when US Treasuries also went down. So, you know, in fact, we had a world meltdown. So I think they're interesting things for people to ponder probably going to those in more detail in weeks to come. And I'll touch on some of these subjects with my guests in this week's podcast, Mark Gallup from the Fick Market Standards Board. Um, finally, I guess um, an interesting one for me, uh, there was a report issued this week that, and I think one of the lines in it was, it's about the FX market structure. And it's another one of these reports that is quite an interesting industry for me because um, without wishing to blow around trumpet, Q fanfare, 
Um, we wrote about this in PL in December when the BIS first issued their report and we analyzed it then. I'm quite surprised at the number of analytical um, pieces coming out based on the BIS survey that um, are charging people money and actually um, making some interesting assumptions, one of which came out this week, which quote said, and the quote is, the all-to-all model emerged completely for the first time in 2019. Now, the all-to-all model um, coming into effects for the very first time, well, first of all, I don't think it has. I think there's a huge um, still you know, client-to-dealer market, and I think the BIS numbers show that, which you know, the anonymous... Um, ECN volumes were about 11% in the BI survey, which is by no means completely um, the market or no, there's nowhere near a majority, as, as you're all aware. Um, the multi-dealer, the client by single dealer, the multi-client model is still there, of course. But I think the fact that this all-to-all model has emerged in FX for the first time completely in 2019 is either a problem with the language or it's going to be news to people like CME, uh, EBS with, you know, with EBS Prime and Refinitiv Matching because um, they've kind of had an all-to-all model for quite a few years last time I checked, um, especially when you bring the Prime brokerage into it. So I'm not quite sure where that report is going. Um, quite frankly, I'm not that interested in where that report's going because the, the survey has kind of turned me off. But, um, yeah, maybe listeners have got thoughts on that. Anyway, that's the quick – that was the week that was for this week. Um, I'll be back in just a second with this week's guest. Join us in Mexico City on Wednesday, March 25th for Profit and Loss Latin America 2020. We have a great program, including a closing keynote from Juan Garcia of Banco de Mexico on recent developments in the Mexican financial markets and the challenges to come. View the full agenda and register for the event at profit-loss.com slash events or email jack at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities. So I'm joined by Mark Yallop, chair of the FIC Market Standards Board. Um, finally, this podcast managed to bring FIC to the world rather than just FX. Uh, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> we meet at a very opportune time, I would say, because obviously um, we're recording this um, in the middle of the week uh, that kicked off with an old price decline of 30%. Um, foreign exchange markets falling around um, and equity markets going limit down within seconds of opening. Um, volatility is back on the agenda, Mark. So generally speaking, from your perspective, I mean, how do you think sort of thick market structure has handled this surge in activity? Well, it's probably early days yet to give a definitive answer to that question, given the real volatility has only happened, I guess, in the last week or so. Yeah. Um, but, um, of course, we are at the end of a decade, really, of accelerated change in market structure, as you say, across many parts of the market, not just in Forex, but also in rates markets, credit markets, uh, even in parts of the commodities world that we look at, um, where regulators, for reasons everybody is very familiar with, have been trying to push more screen-based trading, more central order books, more transparent trading, and more, you know, better, stronger 
post-trade um, settlement processes and so forth. So this is a this is a very interesting moment because it's the first time in that decade really that there's been um, a big test of how resilient the system is. If you exclude a few little blips, those flash crashes which mm. we've seen once once or twice over the over the time. And I think the, the the initial conclusion you draw is reasonably optimistic. Volumes have shot up yep. in the course of the last week. And um, the big uh, platforms in FIC markets have generally performed extremely well. Um, you know, I'm not a... I'm not a spokesman for market access, but I did notice that they published their volume figures, I think, last week um, for the uh, for the first few days of the, of the month. And that showed very significant over increase in uh, volumes on an all to all platform. Yeah. 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 Um, they have, I think, something like uh, 2000. Uh, end investors in credit products trading on their platform and two or three hundred dealers and their volumes leapt through the roof their share i believe of overall market volumes increased dramatically as well mm. so that suggests that the market has moved towards that multilateral all-to-all platform in a way that um, i imagine those who designed the regulatory system were hoping would happen and are probably very happy to see it's quite interesting isn't it because the obviously credit markets in particular have kind of been the poster child for decline over the last five years and this probably is as you say the the vote of confidence that the electronic model needed do you think do you think this could do you think the success of a platform like that, and you know, I'm sure other platform other platforms did have record days as well. Do you yes. think the success and the robustness of these platforms kind of validates the model and, and will give them a, a sustained push? Well, that's why I say I think it's a little bit early to tell yeah. because um, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this. The um, the experience in other asset classes in foreign exchange is is that you. You don't necessarily see rush of liquidity to one platform being sustained mm. over time. So we need to see how things evolve over the next two to three weeks. If this volatility level of volatility, um, this level of volatility uh, continues. But you are absolutely right. Credit has been a problematic asset class for electronic trading for years because you've not got a single homogeneous liquid thing that you're trading, yeah. asset that you're trading. Every issuer has got dozens of bonds out there. Some of them have got hundreds of bonds. Many of them have got coupons set 10 years ago, 20 years ago that are still outstanding. They're trading. You look at the uh, rules in, in Europe about report trade reporting for um, bonds, for example, <clears throat> which, um, of course, I'll get this number wrong, but I think require have deemed that there's only enough trading in about 270 issues in Europe right. to make them liquid enough to require the full gamut <clears throat> of uh, post-trade reporting mm. to happen. The I don't know what the number is, 25,000 yeah. other issues that yeah. are out there in Europe um, that trade once every six months or once a year. Um, don't, don't trade enough on any platform to be... Uh, 
to 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 fit in that um, post trade reporting regime that was introduced in European regulation in the last in the last few years. So part of the FMSB's work over the years, and I guess to me as an outsider, the headline work has been the publication of standards. Yes, for that's market, what for we. Conduct. Yeah, that's what that's what we're really here to do. Right. So. In that basis, then, I mean, do events like this where you get sustained bouts of volatility and you can look at the market under stress, does that sort of help, A, I guess, give you confidence that the standards you've already published cover the, you know, these eventualities, um, and does it, or does it also help you, or B, inform your work going forward? Is this as much of a learning process for someone like the FMSB? No, I think it absolutely is a learning process. I mean, we, we, as you say, we're here to write standards. We're here to write standards that are uh, designed to make markets fairer and more effective. And you're absolutely, I mean, the, the implicit in your question <laughs> is, um, is the following uh, proposition. It's fine to have a bunch of market participants and we have 50 firms sitting around our table yeah. the biggest firms in the fic market it's fine to have them sitting around the table discussing what what's right and what's wrong in markets in fair weather peacetime conditions but if you really want to know what disturbs investors and the end users of markets and that's the key test for us really how do users look at markets do they believe they are do they believe they are trading, hedging, risk managing in markets that are fair or are, are they trading in markets that are rigged against them? Much more interesting for them to make those judgments mm. in times of uh, yeah. volatility, volatility such as we're seeing now. So I expect in the next three to six months that our, our members who are users of markets, and of course some of the market makers as well, will be putting new issues on the table that have arisen mm. directly out of this period of volatility. Yeah, I, th I think that's very true. I, I envisage you sitting at a big table with the end users at one end, the market makers at the other end, with two entrenched positions, and your job is to kind of try and bring them together. Yes, uh, <laughs> you're, you're right about the entrenched positions. Um, frequently, we find yeah. ourselves as the mediators between very different points of view. And it's not just two, by the way, the, no, no, the market no. makers and the takers. <clears throat> if you think about the um, work that we did in the new issue process, I appreciate we're drifting further mm. away from Forex here, but um, in the typical new issue process in the Eurobond market, you've got an issuer, you've got an investor, you've got a lead manager, you've got derivatives desks. So there's at least four parties, all with very different economic interests in what's going mm. on at any given time. And some of those interests change during the during the course of a transaction. So when we did our first standard there on how the new issue process should work, um, we spent a year, more than a year doing that to forge agreement mm. between those four different groups of people. And in fact, uh, I wasn't involved in the room myself at the time, but I was told the first six months of the process was spent just getting six or seven banks to agree between themselves how the syndicate process was meant to work, because they all had different views on what was what was acceptable and normal uh, best practice. Once that had been done, then we went to the issuers uh, and talked about what they expected to see, and then we went to the in investors and they had a third point of view uh 
um, all of which, of course, took you know took mm. time. But the value of what we do is, in a way, driven by the difficulty of those discussions. If they're not difficult yeah. discussions, and if there's not controversy and there's some pretty loud conversations going on, then you know you're not really reaching interesting conclusions. Unless you're trying to herd cats into a swimming pool, you're not being challenged at all. I think <laughs> someone put it to me once. Um, so, in I mean, with the standards, I mean, obviously you've you've produced several standards today, and I know more are probably planned. Um, to give us an idea, then, if I look at I mean, one of the one of the standards you published was for platforms. Is this trying to sort of create a generic way for platforms to operate, or is it actually to give them a a, a set of principles within which the industry believes they should operate, so they get a bit more freedom? Yeah, so we it's a tricky question at what level you should write yeah. this kind of guidance because we are not attempting to write high-flying uh, generic principles, mm. sort of motherhood and apple pie stuff that people would find uh, useful. By the way, there's nothing wrong with motherhood and apple pie. You need some some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but the very high level principles: um, treat your customers fairly, you know, act with integrity and openness and honesty and so forth. <clears throat> don't generally give you much useful guidance when you're sitting on with a trade in front of you and the client's on the phone and you've got 30 seconds to decide well you know what kind of price you're making what sort of conditions you need to attach to it and what sort of disclosures you should you should make you need something uh more useful than that so we when we first started thinking about this problem when we were set up three years ago we really what we realized was that really what fmsb could do usefully is fill in what i've called the conduct void uh, which is a sort of gap that exists between the regulator's high-level broad principles of the sort I mentioned just now and the rule books. And the rule books are written at a very, very fine level of mm. detail. This is specifically what you need to do. This return needs to be filled out. You've got to do exactly the following or else you're going to go, go to jail or get fined or whatever. Yeah. Between those two artifacts, there is a gap where um, there isn't regulatory guidance or legal guidance on how business should get done. By the way, I'm very glad there isn't because actually mm. if the law and the regulators told us exactly how to do everything, there would never be any innovation and markets would never develop and customers would be yeah. badly served. Um, so what we're trying to do is fill in that fill in that middle uh, middle gap. So you mentioned we've done a we've done a couple of interesting standards. Uh, that are relevant, I think, to what's going on in markets now. One on venues that you mentioned, one on algorithmic trading, uh, which are both in the process of being published at the moment and gone out for public uh, consultation. Um, and the one on algorithms talks about the governance of algorithmic trading. So it, it discusses if you are running a business that's deploying algos in markets or using algos for execution, what kind of risk management uh, framework should you have about the running of that algo? What kind of controls do you need to have over the development of the algos, the implementation of them, the quality assurance, the testing of them, and so forth? What sort of uh, 
kill switches and other arresters should you have that you can deploy to um, to uh, control the algorithms if things don't go as um, as expected. So it's it's filling a it's filling a void mm. um, with what we believe is best practice at a principle level, but at a principle level where you can you can easily read that principle. And look at how it relates to your the conduct of your business on a day-to-day uh, basis, and the same for the venues paper uh, standard um, as well. If you're a if you're a platform operator, whether you're running a single dealer platform as a bank, or yeah. you're a market access or a trade web or a you know a, a multilateral platform, what sort of principles should you have in terms of rule books for how the platform operates? What sort of disclosures should you make? How should you handle data that you get? Uh, you come into possession of because you're running the platform. How do you distinguish, for example, between the data that is owned by your platform users because they're trading on your platform versus the data that you aggregate and create yourself by, um, you know, effectively creating anonymized aggregated data feeds that people use to feed their trading programs. Yeah. So two things, I guess, come from that one to, to move us on. Um, on the algo trading, um, obviously, yeah, I totally get the the benefit of standards around, you know, say risk controls, robustness, kill switches, and so on. Um, how does this work in the AI world? Obviously, AI and machine learning are two of the bigger buzzwords of the last 18 mm. months. Um, how much of a challenge is it? to actually sort of take those principles you're talking about there and actually kind of embed them in an algorithm that's going to self-learn. Yeah. So I think it, I think it is hugely challenging and uh, um, you have put your finger right on the, 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 the issue. We've been for, I don't know, 20, 30 years maybe in a world of electronic trading, first of all in equities and then in foreign exchange and yeah. increasingly in other asset classes where people have been deploying algorithms, which they've sometimes called artificial intelligence, I think wrongly because the algorithms that have been deployed so far are um, they're, they're deterministic. They, they use fixed – they're automating what people have done using fixed rules. Yeah. If you see the following pattern of prices, then you're meant to buy. If you see the different pattern of prices you're meant to sell, and when you've done this, then you should do that. And every single time the computer executes um, a against a given set of signals, it's doing exactly the same thing with the same logic, uh, entirely predictable. That kind of algorithmic trading, I know, worries regulators quite a lot because mm. they worry that it can uh, – accelerate and exaggerate wild yeah. price movements. It's how flash crashes <clears throat> occur and so forth. And it creates herding. And it creates herding. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it, it raises concerns, but fundamentally it's just about automating um, in a repeatable fashion decisions that humans have been making in markets for mm. centuries. Um, and I don't think that kind of trading raises anything like uh, the same kind of fundamental problems that, on the other hand, machine learning does. Yeah. So machine learning, machine learning, we remember, is something different, although it's been around for 40, 50 years now. Um, 
machine learning, and this is how I distinguish between the types of challenge that we have, machine learning, different from what we were just talking about, is where you've got uh, a computer that is programmed to learn, to teach itself Hmm. how to make decisions. And each decision that it makes is conditioned by the data that it's looking at from previously and the last time made a decision and presented with two apparently identical fact patterns. The computer makes potentially a, a different decision the second time around than it did the first time because in the intervening period, it's seen more data and thought about other things to take into account. Um, and that is a real conundrum for the regulators because they want to, they're very attached to this idea of explainability. Yeah. And how do you know as the manager responsible for a business, particularly if you're sitting in the UK or actually mm. in Australia or in Hong Kong or Singapore, where there are versions of the senior manager's regime. Yeah. How do you, as the um, person responsible for the business, know what your computer is deciding to do next? And if you can't explain it to me, I'm worried. As but, it's, but it regulator. has to be retrospective, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, you surely you have to look at it and go, well, the computer's made this decision and has done this, and I now need to deal with the consequences yeah. of that. So there is that kind of yeah. retrospective nature to it anyway, isn't there? Well, that's right. So the question is really, is it, is it I, and I think this debate about explainability in machine learning is a bit of a sterile debate because mm. actually I don't think you will ever get to the point where you can no. explain. Well, if you do, then there's no need for the machine. No, possibly not. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, you're looking at the wrong target, if you like. Yeah. If you if you've got a if you've got a machine that is deploying the second type of trading technique that I was just describing, genuine machine learning. Yeah. Then um, it doesn't matter whether you can explain how decisions were made by the computer to trade if you have got appropriate risk controls around the the machine, which are. Um, governing what machine is able to do mm -hmm. to stop it doing yep. something totally inappropriate. Mm. Uh, that probably needs to be a set. You can't, I don't think you can build that into the machine learning algorithm itself. You need to build that in as a layer of defense around the yep. machine learning to, in order to avoid bad outcomes which could be, you know, you can think of those in two different categories. There's bad outcome one, which is um, a uh, highly volatile, out-of-control market with price gaps occurring and the sort of things we were beginning to see happening in this last week. Yep. Or, of course, um, and this is what uh, we will, I think, I hope be looking at in FMSB, bad outcome two is your computer trained to make its own decisions learns that unethical trading is more profitable than ethical trading and decides to start ripping off its clients by manipulating the prices it's offering to clients and that's a skewing liquidity whatever yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you look at the logic of it, latency arbitrage is a is a practice that a lot of people in the market don't like. They think it's destructive to the market quality. <clears throat> yeah, that is pure computer logic. 
you know, I've, I've mentioned before, probably on this podcast, around, you know, the Harvard supercomputer was given the task of genetically breeding FX programs. And within three hours, it worked out that one venue updated slow another and just traded between the two 40,000 times a day. Yeah. Um, the other one, I guess, would be spoofing. Yes. Yeah, the, com- the computer will learn yeah. that if I can put a price in yeah. second level of the market, the chances are I'm going to force someone to take my offer yeah. and then reverse the, the practice. Is this, a, I mean, obviously in, in listed markets, that's pretty easy to spot. Is the challenge going to be then in OTC markets more the fact that, you know, a, a, a machine learning algorithm could learn this doing it in OTC markets where it's a lot harder to spot? It will be. Um, you, you're right. The bin. Um, well, there are there are actually numerous examples of computers spoofing algorithms, spoofing the spoofing markets. There are some celebrated prosecutions actually by Mm. the SEC in the states of uh, there was a program. I can't remember what it was called now, but it was uh, I think 2014, maybe. Mm. Um, Somebody built a program, built an algorithm specifically to spoof the close in listed equities and um they were they were of course found out and uh brought to book but it is much much tougher in uh more sparsely traded less transparent Mm. um otc markets and i guess fragmented markets with liquidity spread across multiple platforms and um you've seen uh you've seen how foreign exchange has yeah, foreign exchange market now supports, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 100 electronic trading platforms. Mm. Um, pers- uh, this may be a controversial statement, um, and it's not a forecast, but I... We're not above controversial statements I, in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I find it hard to see how um, even a market as big and deep and broad and uh, impressive as the FX market is, spot FX market is, can support between yeah. 50 and 100 liquidity platforms. So I, I think over time there will be consolidation of those platforms. Mm. Um, you know, there's been a rush to spawn multiple platforms yeah. for supporting particular segments of the market, which is great, but they're not, I don't think, all viable over the medium term. Liquidity will concentrate, I think, in fewer platforms, and um, that may help with this problem that you describe, yeah. where it's it's easier to see everything that's going on um, in one place. And I guess it could be another driver of it. I mean, earlier on in the podcast, I mentioned the fact that City have released, um, or finally confirmed that they are trimming their number of platforms. Indeed, they yesterday, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's definitely starting because people are looking at liquidity. Yeah. Now, actually, this liquidity is quite quite valuable, and we've kind of been giving it away. Yeah. Um, I wonder if the same thing would happen in the rate space at some stage as well, as it hasn't fragmented as much, but you do look at it and go, oh, if you know, maybe the liquidity they're streaming in the fixed income space needs to be curated slightly better. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure on that one. I, I guess it was still a couple of years away from knowing now, aren't we? I think, I think we are. My dim recollection, I was involved in the development of the um, some of the er- earliest FX uh, platforms when I was at Deutsche in the, in the 90s. <clears throat> my, this may be a false memory, but my recollection of history is that 
um, in a way, because foreign exchange was one of the earliest asset classes to move towards electronic trading and to develop multi uh, multi dealer platforms yeah. supported by um, the big players. Um, actually, uh, the rush of excitement that overcame the FX market in the early noughties um, probably well. That, that, I guess, was the factor that created this fragmentation of uh, liquidity yeah. and spawned multiple platforms. Yeah. Because rates and credit followed later, I think people were a bit more, uh, maybe a little bit more um, kind of tempered learning. Yes. in their reaction in those asset classes. We learned that's from why experience. There are, few, there are fewer of those yeah. platforms that are out. Yeah. That's good to know. Um, one final thing, actually, you mentioned earlier their market data. Um, also, um, over, I think it was maybe Friday or Monday. I'm not quite sure on my timing. But the FCA announced a call for input on market data and benchmark providers. Yeah. Um, do you think that will maybe have an impact on the market structure going forward? I mean, obviously, you know, I guess the fear, you know, you're talking about the standards around the platforms, and you know, you know, do you see a, a time when the standard has to come out saying, well, actually, in terms of the market data provision, you should be doing X? I, 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 uh, I certainly don't know why the FCA launched its um, consultation yesterday. But um, if, you, if you take it at face value, um, and there's no reason not to, I think, then uh, I think the issue they're trying to get at is – uh, one we have talked about it at FMSB, which is as as uh, regulation and technology moves markets more electronic, greater deployment of algorithms, whether they're rules based or they're machine learning based, but more and more electronic uh, trading driven by models. Yeah, those models feed off data, and so data becomes progressively more and more valuable for uh, market uh, functioning. And, um, of course, some smart people have anticipated this trend and they're trying to build businesses off uh, market data. You see, indeed, M&A transactions in the works at the moment yep. that are clearly driven by that insight. And that's only the latest in a long series of moves in this direction. The question that I think interests the FCA and certainly interests FMSB as well is, could you see a world developing in wholesale financial markets that has similar characteristics to the developments you've seen in uh, social media and personal interactions across the internet mm. in the past decade where a small number of firms yeah. we all know who they are have <clears throat> have come to acquire voluminous amounts of data on our individual interactions and they sell that and they use it to obviously incredibly successful commercial ends for their own their own businesses but at the same time raise all sorts of personal liberty, civil liberty mm. uh, 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 questions. So, you know, you could imagine a world in which potentially wholesale financial market data 
becomes concentrated in the hands of a very small number of firms, uh, drives all secondary market trading activity, which drives in turn primary issuance uh, uh, activity as well, and um, potentially those owners of that data have a they have a competitive stranglehold on who's able to who who, who can afford to yeah. and who's able to access the data that's needed to drive the the models that we were talking about earlier on and i, I know the fca has a has a competition uh, objective yeah. um london is obviously the largest center of multi-currency multi-product trading and so my hypothesis would be that their their fundamental interest is in trying to get hold of that question yeah and see if they can answer it only in financial markets can we have a conversation where we discuss the challenges of fragmentation and the challenges of lack of competition in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I, I guess that's that's the sort of chicken and eggs mm. problem that markets always face. I think we all know that too much fragment, or too much fragmentation is a bad thing, and we also know that mm. you know too little competition yeah. is a bad thing, and we spend our lives trying to find mm. the nirvana. Yes, which it's like that story you learned as a child about three bears and the temperature of their porridge. Yes, just enough is good. Yes, too much. <laughs> In either direction, is not so good. <laughs> yes, and we struggle to find those those happy mediums. Yeah. Um, Mark, thank you very much for joining us on in the thick of it. Um, great to have your input, um, and to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening. And um, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much. Have a good week.